Hello, and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 106. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction podcast magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Well, we got a weird one for you folks this week. Hopefully people know by now to brace themselves when we team up with Frank Key. First, though, a Drabble story. Drabbles are stories exactly 100 words, short and sweet. The Gary Coleman of literature forms. Send yours to Drabblecast at yahoo.com. This week's story is by David Steele from Yorkshire, England, and it's called Deep in Fleming. David is an avid writer who is currently busy writing his first children's book. A shot rang out. If ever there was a promising start to a book, it was that. James settled back and began to concentrate on the musty yellow pages of the paperback he'd picked up from the second-hand section of the bookstore for less money than a trashy magazine. A spy thriller, complete with deadly spies and dazzling women. It was the perfect distraction. Something to occupy him during the long wait. As he read on, his client headed home, oblivious to the fact that James was already there, in the house, waiting for him with a loaded pistol. This week as a feature story, we bring you a jazz-inspired crime caper, well, sort of, by Frank Key, called Boiled Black Broth and Cornets. You've heard Mr. Key's work on the Drabblecast before, with episode 90, Far, Far Away, which was, indeed, way, way out there. You can find more Frank Key at his website, hootingyard.org, and his podcast on Resonance FM, where his weekly show is approaching its fifth anniversary. I actually just ordered a copy of his book, Gravitas, Punctilio, Rectitude, and Pippi Bags, which is a fat compendium of 101 of the short stories he often has on his radio show, and I'm looking forward to getting that. So without further ado, Boiled Black Broth and Cornets by Frank Key. I paid a visit to my friend, Becky Biederbix in her fortress in the mountains. We had known each other since childhood, growing up on a post-war housing estate, a workaday world of compactness and convention. But Becky was always a single-minded girl who followed her own strange star. And while the rest of us went off to polytechnics and office jobs and became fodder for a peculiarly dull-witted type of English fiction, Becky decamped to the mountains and built herself a fortress with her bare hands. I had no idea where she had picked up the skills to do this, and in truth, when I visited, I was astonished to find how solid and immense and impregnable her fortress appeared, a massive edifice perched upon a bluff, as forbidding in its aspects as the Schloss Adler and Where Eagles Dare, but without the Nazi connotations, for Becky was the most apolitical person I have ever known. When she greeted me at the gate, she was holding a cornet in her hand, 
Hello, Dennis, she said, planting a peck on my cheek. As you can see, I have taken up the cornet, like my near namesake Bix Biederbecky, the original young man with a horn, and perhaps the greatest jazz man of the 1920s. From fortress building to cornet playing, you never cease to amaze me, Becky, I replied, dumping my weekend luggage in a corner of the grim, brickish vestibule. Well, as you are well aware, I do follow my own strange star, she said, steering me into the canteen of the fortress, where she'd ladled soup out of a tureen into a pair of bowls. And this is my own homemade soup, she announced. For in addition to building the fortress and learning the cornet, I have taken a correspondence course in devising original soup recipes. In your bowl, you have what I have dubbed Becky Biederbix's boiled black broth, in which every single ingredient begins with the letter B. As you can see, it is a black soup, of a black, so black, that if you stare at it, instead of spooning it into your mouth, you will become entranced, pretty much like a voodoo zombie person, and you will be entirely within my power. Um, then I shall shut my eyes while I drain the bowl, Becky, I said. Yes, I was about to recommend you do just that, Dennis, she replied. The soup proved to be bland and without even a hint of taste, but it warmed my innards and stopped the gurgling in my belly. Now that your belly has stopped gurgling, Dennis, I shall take you to see my workshop, said Becky and I followed her into the bowels of the fortress, to a room with a thousand padlocks and reinforced walls and sputtering candles. I half expected to see a gibbering hunchback named Mungo, but it seemed Becky worked without assistance. Well now, I said, you have many towering piles of telephone directories from all around the world, much thumbed through and dog-eared, as if you've been poring over them with terrific diligence, Becky. That I have, Dennis, she replied. It is a drudgery, to be sure, but necessary to the success of my project. Of course, I asked her what the project was, and her reply shocked me to the marrow. For all that her star was a strange one, it had never occurred to me that Becky was capable of the abduction and incarceration in dungeons beneath her fortress of eight completely innocent souls. She had gone through those directories searching for names, and when she alit upon an apt name, she tracked the person down, wheresoever they might be, and she crept up on them and shoved a rag soaked in chloroform over their breathing channels and shoved them into the back of her van and drove like the devil himself at tip-top speed until back into her mountain fastness 
And then she dragged the abductee down into one of her dungeons and slammed the heavy iron door shut upon them. And every day thereafter, she took them a bowl of her black, black soup and made them stare into its blackness until it was lukewarm. So they were pretty much like voodoo zombie persons entirely within her power. And then she commanded them to drink the soup until the gurgling in their bellies had ceased. But why, Becky, why? I shrieked, as if taking part in a melodrama, wondering how this sensible, resourceful woman I had once known had become so loopy. Oh, this is only part one of the plan, Dennis, she said. It will all make perfect sense now that I have an abductee in each of my eight dungeons. You would not believe how long it has taken me to work my way through those confounded directories to find the names I need, and then, of course, to travel hither and yon to wherever they are and do the bit with the chloroform, which has its own risks. You gape at me, goggle-eyed, Dennis, as if I have taken leave of my senses, and... I would agree with you, were it not that all this is merely a preparation for a grander scheme. I did not discover over that weekend what the grander scheme was. Becky showed me a few other things in her workshop, including some mysterious small trunks, then insisted that we head up on a rooftop ping-pong area and play ping-pong for hours and hours. Every so often she took a break to visit the dungeons and left me to lie on my back, exhausted, staring at the bitter sky, trying not to think about what in heaven's name was going on far below in the subterranean depths of the fortress. I made my farewell on the Sunday evening after being given a bowl of a different homemade soup which I could sup without shutting my eyes it was as bland as the black zombie soup, but extremely welcome after all that ping-pong. Becky waved at me as I trudged down the mountainside towards the bus stop. I looked back, and there she stood at her fortress gate, and above her, in the now darkening sky, shone a single star. I couldn't help but smile. She may have become bonkers, but she would always be my pal. A year or so passed. I was too busy with my halibut research to give much thought to Becky and her eight abductees. I sent her the occasional letter to which she always replied, although she never said much about what she was up to, confining herself to remarks about general fortress maintenance. And then one day, passing through Pointy Town, some kind of woolly-hatted student in need of pin money handed me a leaflet. I shoved it into my pocket and forgot about it, and only later, as I was rummaging through my jacket for scrunched-up halibut research notes, did I come upon it and read it. The Pointy Town Hepcat Jazz Club, it said, is pleased to announce a concert by a thrilling new combo. For the past year, Becky Biederbix has been teaching the cornet to an octet of eight amateurs, and she is now ready to lead them in what promises to be a fantastic debut. 
The Becky Peter Bix Bix Peter Becky Tribute Cornet Octet, featuring newcomers Bixter B Becky, Beaky Bixter Beck, K Beck Bixter B, Bix Beck Peter Key, B Bix Beck Turkey, Turkey Bix Beck B, Keep it a Bix Beck and Bixky Derby Beck. They will perform a show of Bix Beater Becky classics. And soup will be served in the form of Becky Beater Bix's boiled black broth. Admission is free. I attended the show, of course, but shut my eyes for the soup. That was our story. Hope you enjoyed it. In case you're wondering why this episode is late this week, it's because of that Bixter B Becky Beaky Bixter Beck K Beck Bixter B Bix Beck B Durky B Bix Beck Durky Durky Bix Beck B K Beater Bix Beck and Bix Keeter B Bix Line. Whew, I was up at 4 a.m. doing that one. So let's do some story feedback. A couple weeks ago, we ran a story called The Last Dog by Mike Resnick as episode 102. This story was very well received and got everyone in our discussion forums all sappy. Logistic Vantra Shell of Lob said, I'm going to be frank here and say that this story was the first piece of audio fiction that has ever brought tears to my eyes, and the first piece of any kind of fiction since I was seven. I'm really not an emotional guy, but the ending really touched me. My only minor criticism was that the piece didn't really need an alien. It would have been just as touching and more realistic if the man had died of a disease or something. Plus, the audience would have been left wondering what caused the disaster. Others agreed that the alien was unnecessary, and others got all sentimental on us. Amory Lowe said, I've read and listened to a lot of Resnick stories. I know his penchant for his stories causing his readers' listeners to cry. I've never cried during a Resnick story. I haven't cried since my grandmother died many years ago. This story, however, has brought me the closest to doing that in many years. There were a few who didn't see what all the fuss was about, like Poppy Dragon, who said, Much as I hate to say it about a Resnick story, for me, this was meh. The cliches came a bit thick and fast, and it all ended up feeling really contrived. We like hearing from listeners. Join our discussion forums off our main page and let us know what you think. Well, hey, my belly's gurgling and I must attend to my halibut. So that's all for this week. The Drabblecast uses a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial no derivatives license, which means you can't change it or sell it, but you can entrance entire directories of people with it for free. If you like what we do and you can find it in your heart to donate to us, follow your strange star over to the donate buttons on our website, where you can either make a one-time donation or subscribe for a measly five bucks a month. It's not a whole lot, but if enough people do it, it goes a long way. We'll see you next week. Our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, Mungo the Hunchback, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you to keep your eyes on the soup. The evening saunters to closing. The waitress turns chairs upside down. Piano player picks up his tip jar and drink, and the bartender shouts last round. An hour ago.